Welcome to the Idaho Debates, a Q&A for U.S. Senate. The Idaho Debates is organized by these partners. Funding provided by the Friends of Idaho Public Television, the Idaho Public Television Endowment, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Hello and welcome to the Idaho Debates. I'm Melissa Davlin. Today we hear from candidates running to represent Idaho in the U.S. Senate. The Republican incumbent is Senator James Risch, who was first elected to the Senate in 2008. Prior to that, he served as Idaho's governor from 2006 to 2007, as well as lieutenant governor and Senate Majority Leader of the Idaho State Senate. Paulette Jordan is the Democratic nominee for the seat. Jordan was elected as a member of the Coeur d'Alene Tribal Council and served from 2009 until 2011. She also served in the Idaho House of Representatives from 2014 until 2018, representing the 5th Legislative District. Jordan was the Democratic nominee for governor in 2018. Natalie Fleming is running as an independent. Fleming grew up in Eastern Oregon and moved to Nampa in 2002. She describes herself as a rancher's daughter and a mother of four. Fleming ran for Congressional District 1 in 2018. Constitution Party candidate Ray Ritz did not respond to our communications. Because of COVID-19 and the need for social distancing, we did not hold a traditional debate this year. Instead, I moderated a question and answer session with each candidate separately. Following the rules drawn up by the debate committee, I asked every person the same question and each had a minute and a half to respond. If I had a follow-up question, the candidate had 60 seconds to answer, and if candidates went slightly over their time, I let them finish their thought. Since they were interviewed separately, the candidates did not hear each other's responses and so did not have the opportunity for a direct rebuttal. I started by asking them about the federal government's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Senator Risch, more than 210,000 Americans have died of COVID-19, including more than 500 Idahoans. Are you satisfied with the federal government's response to the pandemic? And if not, what would you have done? Yeah, well, you should never be satisfied under these circumstances, uh, but let, let's do a little history here. First of all, um, you know, this is our sixth pandemic since 2003. We've been through SARS, we've been through Ebola, we've been through MERS. So we, the, the, the world and the United States has had some experience uh, with the pandemic, uh, particularly viruses. Um, in addition to that, uh, we, of course, we had the AIDS uh, uh, epidemic for a lot of decades. A lot was learned, there's no question about it. This one was different and uh, no one knew it was different, including the Chinese where it started. We know for a fact that this started in Wuhan, China, that, uh, that it uh, was developed in the bat population there. There's a robust bat population. They have 2,000 different viruses uh, in the bat population. This one jumped to a human being, and then, as we all know, took off from there, and there's a lot of uh, conspiracy theories and what have you. But nonetheless, the fact of the matter is it left Wuhan, China, and went around the world. Uh, People did not know that it was going to be as contagious as it is. Every one of these viruses uh, act differently. So as this started, uh, it uh, everyone was trying to do what they'd always done in the in virus cases. They all they all thought that the uh, the virus uh, would uh, run its course and uh, and that would be the end of it. But uh, obviously, it uh, it didn't. And uh, we we have what we have. There was a lot of efforts made by the states, by the private sector, by by everyone. We are where we are. So what would you have done differently as a follow-up? 
Well, knowing what I know now, uh, I would have long ago passed the bill, that a bipartisan bill that I've got pending in Congress that's going to set up an agency to handle uh, a fire like this. I, I consider this a house on fire. It wasn't your usual slow moving uh, pandemic that we've had. Uh, I have a bill in uh, right now that I've introduced with Chris Murphy uh, from uh, Democrat from Connecticut. And uh, it, it sets up an international agency to respond to this, to, to a fire like this. The WHO responded. I've spent a lot of time with Dr. Tedros and, and his people talking about what could have been done differently. They admit that uh, there, there are some things that, uh, that could have been done differently. Uh, but uh, having said that, um, th this bill will create uh, an, an international agency that will respond to a house on fire, a fire department, if you would. And I, that's what I would do differently, knowing what I know now. Senator, as a follow-up, you mentioned conspiracy theories relating to this virus leaving China, and you know, the vast majority of scientists agree that this is a zoonotic disease that jumped from animals to humans. But do you believe any of those conspiracy theories? You, you know, I don't, and I'll tell you why. I, I sit on the Intelligence Committee, and although I can't go into all the details, um, we on the Intelligence Committee deal with all kinds of threats to America. And that includes uh, uh, pandemic threats that uh, from time to time have arisen, but but ha obviously haven't uh, done what this did. Uh, when this happened, uh, coming out of Wuhan, China, particularly when China had a, a lab right there in Wuhan, China, that was studying viruses, uh, and, and the fact that this wet market was involved, uh, we, we saw all these theories developed uh, as to the conspiracies as to why this happened. Um, I can tell you there is no uh, concrete evidence uh, that uh, that this was done intentionally. Uh, it's a wake-up call because obviously somebody could try to do this intentionally, and of course that's why the intelligence committee looks at, at these kinds of things. But no, I'm not I'm not bought on to any of those uh, conspiracy theories at all. And Senator, as we're having this conversation, Senate action has been halted because some of your colleagues have tested positive for COVID-19, and some have been photographed without wearing masks or social distancing. So can the American people trust the federal government on this if some officials aren't setting a good example? Yeah, well, you know, I, as you know, I've been in government uh, quite a while. I, uh, I am always reticent about uh, government. Uh, government is made up of people. People are human beings. Uh, they have prejudices, and I don't mean that in a bad way. It just, it's the way we human beings are. Uh, you always want to check things out for yourself. Uh, look, I wear a mask, mask regularly, uh, within reason. Uh, if I'm in a group, uh, I always have a mask on. If I'm outside working on the ranch, I don't have a mask on. Uh, but uh, uh, look, it, this, it, this, the first meeting I had on this in the uh, in, in my foreign relations committee, I had uh, uh, Dr. Fauci there, I had Dr. Redmond there, I had a bunch of other experts, and we talked about how this spread. And one person, one of the, my other senators asked them, they said, well, uh, when somebody grabs a doorknob, how long will that be there? And they wound up in a big disagreement amongst themselves as to how long the, the virus would last. We now know it's an airborne virus. It's not rocket science to figure out that uh, you need to cover up and be around people that are covering up. One last follow-up on this topic. Will you take the vaccination when it's available and will you encourage constituents to do the same? Yeah, probably I will. Um, I've talked to the companies that are doing this. This is not the government that is uh, developing these vaccines. Uh, I know the national media likes to uh, 
portrayed that Donald Trump is somehow in his kitchen um, making a vaccine. This is being done by the private sector. It was done because of the uh, robust funding that all of us in Congress provided uh, in the original coronavirus bill. Uh, and we engaged the private sector. The private sector is the place for these kinds of things. We have five companies right now that are in final testing. The federal government can stop any one of those uh, uh, companies from releasing their vaccine. The federal government cannot tell them that they have to release their vaccine. So as a result of that, the companies themselves are making the decision. They all know that these, these very valuable companies, if they put out a bad vaccine, it would be the end of their company. They all cite the, uh, uh, the Boeing uh, uh, 737 MAX cases, the trouble that this can cause. They're not gonna put this vaccine out till it's safe. I'll take the vaccine. Representative Jordan, more than 210,000 Americans have died of COVID-19, including more than 500 Idahoans. Are you satisfied with the federal government's response to the pandemic? And if not, what would you have done? Absolutely not. Uh, I would say that the COVID has continued to ravage our country and we're seeking upticks in, seeing upticks in Idaho. I mean, just yesterday, we were, there were 228 new cases of COVID in Idaho. We are grieving the loss of more than 500 Idahoans who have lost their lives since the pandemic began. And cases have increased sharply in our state for the past month, and they continue to rise. In fact, we're near the top in the list of states with numbers of new cases per capita. And that's scary for so many of our families, so many of our young ones, especially those of us who have children uh, who are watching the news and know that we haven't beaten this virus, and we're not even close to beating this virus. And that is what exactly uh, we want to make sure that people understand. And what has Senator Risch done to protect us? You know, absolutely nothing. This crisis has produced a test of leadership. Here in the United States, our leaders have failed that test. And with better leadership, we could have saved lives and saved Idaho's economy. This is a very big issue, and certainly none, uh, none of us should politicize this issue. And yet, Risch, as he says, he speaks privately with the president, but he doesn't share what he knows. So many of us should be asking, when would they hear this information? as far as what does he know and when did he know it. Um, he attended the coronavirus task force briefings at the White House in February and he has said nothing and only that he didn't want to cause a panic, which is exactly what President Trump told Bob Woodward when he said he wanted to downplay the virus. This is why Idahoans are now asking uh, the exact same questions that we are asking. And as someone close to the president and on the Foreign Relations Committee, Senator Rush should have pushed for and contributed to a national plan. But what's worse is he did absolutely nothing to warn and help Idaho. And that's disgraceful. As a follow-up, as we're speaking, Congress has reached a stalemate on economic recovery and stimulus checks. What would you do to suggest a compromise between the House Democrats and Senate Republicans? Well, from an economic perspective, we definitely need federal relief. And so many Americans are uncertain about how well they, they will get by during this pandemic. The relief legislation we've come seeing out of Congress falls short for two main reasons. It hasn't done enough to help small business owners and working families. And two, it is primarily a corporate bailout, bailout with hidden tax breaks for millionaires. It's appalling that Rich is griping about $600 per week going to vulnerable jobless Americans, but he's fine with spending the people's tax dollars to bail out wealthy corporations to donate to his campaign. And the most pro-economy thing you can do right now is help middle-class people thrive. Working families are what drive our economy. And so it's not a mistake to stand up for working families. If Mr. Rich thinks so, then it's best he steps out of the way for new leadership. And ultimately, you know, right now with bipartisan leadership, it's going to come down to us putting our parties aside. This is not an issue or an area that Mr. Rich is actually strong in, uh, being that he's very partisan. Uh, and unfortunately, he is not doing his job. But he needs to make the case uh, to President Trump 
and uh, Mitch McConnell that we need this legislation, this bipartisan legislation. Uh, businesses will close because he is not acting. Even President Trump is waffling. So action can and should be taken, but he's not taking it. But I will tell you that Idahoans want to see the stimulus funding addressed as a top priority over the, even the confirmation of a Supreme Court justice. So to clarify, what in the Democrats' proposal would you suggest compromising on to reach a consensus with the Senate Republicans? Well, there's already compromise. I mean, the uh, House Repo uh, Democrats have already proposed a $3 trillion budget, which would go towards working families, small businesses, uh, and of course, helping the people in the middle class. What has not been uh, addressed is that they have actually cut that in half. So even with the compromise that has been made, uh, cutting that budget in half by uh, over $1.5 trillion, that would still help the people here, especially those of us here in Idaho. Uh, so I see that as a good compromise if they were to take action within the uh, Senate Republicans Party. Uh, as a follow-up, due to the pandemic, many students are forced to participate in online school, and some students, especially in rural parts of the state, still don't have access to resources to be successful. What, if anything, should the federal government do to provide resources for students and families? Well, I think with this COVID pandemic funding, I mean, this would actually essentially help uh, as long as we are able to get this money back to our people and we're not holding it up. Uh, as much as the, the governor is doing right now. I mean, this is, again, this should not be a political issue. Uh, this should be about getting resources to the people who need it most. And we're not just talking about small businesses who really need this funding, but many of our young families are students. And of course, we're seeing this uh, hit uh, in many of our uh, small towns and communities uh, as we're sending our children off to our young people off to college. Uh, you know, people are still having a hard time uh, paying their tuition uh, or even paying down their student debt. Um, and unfortunately, now uh, they're going back to school and being sent home again, as we're seeing here in Idaho, many of our universities or colleges being closed down, uh, sending students home because of the COVID cases that are going up. So it's, um, you know, it's going to be a, a tough time for many of us for some time to come, and it is unpredictable. Uh, but I foresee at least six months to a year before we start to see uh, any of these challenges addressed. But yes, we need to make sure that our state budget uh, is going to uh, do its part. And once we're receiving this COVID funding, uh, if we can even get our Republican leaders to uh, address this issue and send relief home to those of us here, uh, then we can actually start having these conversations. And I would love to see uh, much of those resources go to our education system, uh, even in a state like ours where we have cut funding towards education. I mean, $99 million is no small lump sum of change, especially the hit that our colleges have taken. One last follow-up on this topic. Will you take the vaccination when it's available and will you encourage your constituents to do the same? Well, that all depends. I mean, it depends on the source. Uh, I certainly trust uh, the CDC and uh, in certain aspects, but I wanna make sure that we do our part. Uh, and of course, because uh, we've seen even the politicization of uh, these medical leaders that are coming to the forefront, uh, I think it's gonna come down to those who we can trust in the medical field. Uh, and then if, as long as those who are uh, in the forefront that I trust uh, in this medical field are there, uh, I will certainly lead by example and uh, take the vaccine, uh, I'd rather me be the one uh, who is um, uh, first impacted. And if there's some negative result, I wanna make sure that I'm uh, keeping our people free and clear of any after effects. But of course, uh, I also wanna lead by example in the same token to say that yes, the, the uh, vaccine is safe and that we should all make sure that we get vaccinated if, if that is what it comes down to. Ms. Fleming, more than 210,000 Americans have died of COVID-19, including more than 500 Idahoans. Are you satisfied with the federal government's response to the pandemic? And if not, what would you have done? 
Absolutely not. Um, first of all, the federal government has, uh, we've seen a lot of problems with competition between the federal government and getting PPE equipment to the states. We have, we've seen that states compete uh, to, for those contracts in, in the very beginning. Um, I believe that shutting down the entire economy has been devastating to individuals and families. Um, here in Idaho, uh, we do have the don't tell me what to do attitude throughout the state of Idaho. And in order to get the best response from the, from the uh, residents of Idaho, the best course of action for Idahoans is to request um, kindly, please wear a mask, please take these steps. Um, any mandates tends to cause more of a backlash and conspiracy theories and paranoia over those requests. But Idaho is definitely a don't tell me what to do state. Um, uh, I, in, here in Idaho, we have some great actors great uh, people. I know that Tommy Alquist has done a great job providing leadership for, crush, for crushing the curve initially when it came out. Um, however, the economic downturn has been overwhelming and uh, devastating to the economy. And I know that we will be able to recover and overcome it. Um, but if we, every time we lose rights, we have a difficult time getting them back, as, uh, for an example, with the Patriot Act. So, um, yeah. As a follow-up question, you mentioned mask mandates. Idaho, of course, does not have a state one, is instead relying on local governments to do so. When you say that we should ask people nicely to wear a mask, realistically, is that not working? And what is the uh, cure on a federal level? Well, I believe on the federal level, it is to ask nicely, even if people refuse. We do have basic rights among us. Um, we, we live in a high-risk society, and we, that's what we as Americans, uh, how we think and how Idahoans think. So um, I know that there's been people arrested for not wearing a mask, and that just, it just creates more resistance. Anytime you have a mandate and try to force people into something, it creates a greater conflict. People need to know that they have that agency, and if you, I do believe, that asking kindly is the, the path to go. Some cities and communities have um, enforced a mask, a mask mandate, which has caused greater conflict and greater resistance to it. It is the way we think. You have to respect our agency, our individual choices. And that's the only way to get cooperation, not through force. Another follow-up, due, due to the pandemic, many students are forced to participate in online school, but some students still don't have the resources to be successful at remote learning. What, if anything, should the federal government do to provide resources to students and families? Well, one, one thing that we are doing here in Idaho is much of the, some of the, the courses are being published on PBS. We, uh, that should have been done decades ago. Um, I do believe, I'm, I'm a big supporter of homeschooling, unschooling, and, and in addition to public school. Um, so I, I think that any family that can homeschool should at home if they, if they can, and then leaving more resources to those who do not have that available. Um, but one of the things that I do appreciate about, about this experience, I do believe it is bringing families closer together and bringing, getting those parents who can more involved in the education process. And that, and I feel like every aspect of our society is pulling families apart and suddenly we are bringing our families back together again. And I do see that there are many families that do not have grandparents in the home or aunts and uncles to help the families to go through, to go through this difficult time. 
realistically most students are still enrolled in public school, whether virtual or in person at this point. So with that in mind, should the federal government step up, step up its efforts to provide PPE and testing for schools that are operating in person? Well, as of what has happened in the past, when the federal government was providing PPE, they ended up in direct competition with the state's resources. I believe that as much of the problem needs to be solved at the local level as possible. Um, the, the federal government can be too invasive. They get they tie strings attached to anything that they do. So I do believe it needs to handle local. They can, if the federal government wants to send funds to help the states receive the procure the resources they need, then yes but it needs to be a local and state decision. Education needs to be kept kept at the state level, even in times of crisis. Will so you... I would support funding, funding, but as far as the funding to the states from the federal level, but as far as dictates that needs to be done at the state level. One last follow-up, will you take the vaccination when it's available and will you encourage uh, constituents to do the same? Honestly, I don't, honestly, I don't know. Um, I do look at each vaccination testing individually. I know that for my children, most of their vaccinations have been done, but there have been specific ones. I do have two children on the spectrum. And so I do tend to get a little more, little more paranoid over just giving a vaccination. I will look at the testing and, and read, the, read the work that has been on that. Um, I'm, I, I am blessed personally with a great immune system but not everybody is, and I understand that. Um, and I'm one of the many people who believes they had it back in January. Um, so um, I will consider the vaccine. I will consider the vaccine, but I won't commit to it for myself. And to be clear, scientific consensus shows that there's no link between autism spectrum disorders and vaccination. Is that a concern that you have, very briefly? Um, I, it is a concern that I do have. I have um, seen negative I do have a child who has had un, unexplained regressions. And so that makes you kind of hypervigilant over things. And there are a lot of people who have personally shared with me their problems that they've had with the vaccinations. Um, so I do believe in the concept of vaccination, but I do think that, that we do need to do more to secure the security of them. I do believe in the concept of vaccinations and my kids have been mostly vaccinated. But I do have concerns, and um, I'd like to see more on the materials used in the preservatives of the vaccines. So. Representative Jordan, do you believe the Affordable Care Act should be repealed? And if so, what should replace it? No, not at all. Um, in fact, the Affordable Care Act is what's on the ballot this election cycle. Uh, unfortunately, my opposition has uh, done everything in its power to try to uh, not only eliminate uh, the rights of people having access to health care insurance, uh, but even protecting, uh, preventing those who have pre-existing conditions from being protected. And because we have a new nominee uh, in uh, Amy Cohen Barrett that is willing to uh, basically uh, dismantle the ACA, which is a functional form of medicine and practical care for people here in Idaho, uh, we fought back in 2018 to expand uh, Medicaid. And I think that's essential for many who are coming from both sides of the aisle, working together on a plan for our people and covering those who didn't have health care in the first place. So healthcare uh, essentially must come down to uh, practical, integrative solutions. Uh, I feel under uh, President Biden that we have an opportunity with the public option uh, to see a solution come to the forefront. Uh, I am very much a believer in, in, uh, and faithful in terms of uh, seeing functional medicine come to light and wanting to see greater healthcare integrative solutions that can 
help best suit the needs of our people, especially when we're spending $3 trillion in chronic health care. I'd like to cut that in half and make sure that we're spending uh, for preventative uh, measures, ensuring that we're helping uh, build up the lives of our people, our elders, our youth. Uh, and now that we have COVID and this pandemic moving over us, we have uh, certainly been aware that uh, our nutritional health care plays a great deal in our lives and our, our livelihoods. Um, so I will certainly protect the ACA uh, to the best of my ability in the Senate leadership. As a follow-up, you touched on this a bit, but do you support moving toward a single-payer health care system? I do. Um, being that I like the idea of public health because I do, uh, first and foremost, want to see people have access to choice. I think though, after some time when people see this public option, uh, that they'll want to see lower costs, affordable health care. And if we're able, it's really about to me data and implementing the right form of health care that can be accessible. You know, we uh, don't all have access to a chiropractic or chiropractor. Uh, we don't all have access to these different integrative methods that aren't covered under health insurance. Uh, so I think once we start exchanging new methods of healthcare to formulate a different type of system, so it's not a uh, profit-centered uh, form of healthcare, that it's a people-centered form of healthcare, this is to me the new way forward. Uh, and how we pay for it is essentially going to come down to how can we be as fiscally conservative and mindful of our resources and I think we can certainly cut back when we look at how much we pay on chronic health care alone in this country. I mean, we've already spent $21 trillion on chronic health care, and that's quite a bit of money uh, over the last 10 years. But if we look at cutting back and uh, applying a different kind of health care, that would certainly save our country a great deal of money. Ms. Fleming, do you believe the Affordable Care Act should be repealed? And if so, what should replace it? Yes, I do believe the Affordable Care Act should be repealed. Um, the problem with any mandate is that they're always very restrictive. There's a lot of options outside of the Health Care Act that are great. And anytime we have a mandate within the federal government, we limit creativity. It shuts down other options. There's a lot of great options in North Idaho. Dr. Rodney Story provides what's called direct primary care, or what I consider little house on the prairie care where he charges his client, his families less than $200 a month and they're able to get direct services from him. He has very little staff, so he has little overhead. He's able to maintain his business with only 600 families. And um, he does house calls. He also has a contract for the prescriptions so he can get the prescription at, a, at wholesale cost and pass those savings directly on to his clients. So there's a lot, that's just one of many ideas that can be done. Um, there is an idea of allowing uh, people to purchase direct primary care from the local physicians and then having uh, universal catastrophic for anybody over $50,000 in expenses and then having an insurance policy for that gap between what their local doctor can provide and uh, up to the $50,000 uh, limit. So that's just one of many, many ideas that are out there, but those ideas can't come to fruition with a mandate from the federal government saying this is how it's done. Two years ago, more than 60% of the voters in Idaho's general election approved the expansion of Medicaid, which is an option under the Affordable Care Act. Since Idaho voters specifically approved that change, should the expansion still stand if the Affordable Care Act is repealed? Yes, it needs. Uh, yes, the uh, for the Medicaid expansion must be done because that is what the voters of Idaho decided, and I do believe in letting the states decide. Whether I agree with it or not, that 
decision or not is irrelevant. That's what the voters decided. We need to expand Medicaid to the levels um, chosen by the voters. And I do understand that there's a great financial challenges in, in accomplishing that, but Idaho is a resilient state and a very capable state, and they have a responsibility to do that. Senator Ish, do you believe the Affordable Care Act should be repealed? And if so, what should replace it? You know, the this is it's really unfair for the viewers to listen to a minute and a half of this. This debate's been going on uh, since before I got to to the United States Senate. The, the healthcare system in America is dynamic. Look, it's the fifth largest industry, and it is the most personal matter to to each and every one of us and our loved ones. Um, we need uh, a healthcare policy in this country. Uh, that uh, provides uh, uh, economical, good, overall health care to, uh, uh, to the American populace. And that's got a lot of moving parts to it. Um, I, I voted against Obamacare at the beginning. I voted to repeal it every time. Obviously, it can't just go away. And that's this debate that's going on nationally. Oh, you know, the health don't vote for the Supreme Court justice because she's going to vote to get rid of get rid of Obamacare. If indeed the Supreme Court uh, rules, whichever whichever way it rules, there's going to be a lot of work done in healthcare as we go down the pike. So the the bottom line to your question: Do I favor repealing it? Yes, but I also favor replacing it uh, with a much more market-oriented approach uh, than. Uh, than what Obamacare was. They originally wanted to go to a full socialized medicine where all doctors, all hospitals, everything would be owned by the government. Uh, they didn't do that. They ratcheted it down some. But look, now I think uh, with divided government, it's going to take compromise on both sides, which is what you, we need. This, this is something really important. Look, we came together for Social Security, for Medicare, for Medicaid. That needs to be done on our overall uh, healthcare system to where everybody in America has access to a, a good basic healthcare system. Senator Rich, as a follow-up, where are you willing to compromise? Well, just about anywhere. Uh, there, there are, look, there were 3,000 pages in the original bill. They, we voted on that at, I don't know, two or three in the morning. They put it on our desk 45 minutes before that. Since then, there's been tens of thousands of pages of, of regulations written. Where am I willing to compromise? Where do you want to start? Uh, we we do need to come together. Look, th this this has got to be done. Eventually, it will be done. Uh, the the system that we live under is a is a robust system of give and take and of, of debate and uh, uh, back and forth between Republicans, Democrats, conservatives, liberals, uh, the, the religious community, and everyone else. Uh, we'll get there, uh, but uh, uh, we, you know. Winston Churchill said, uh, uh, America always does what's right after they've tried a lot of other things. So we'll get there. But, uh, and, and by the way, Great Britain shouldn't be preaching to us about, uh, about health care. Their system uh, is awful. But uh, in any event, uh, we'll get there. I'm convinced of it. Ms. Fleming, trust in Congress and the White House has been at record lows consistently for the last 10 years, and we've all seen how vitriolic public discourse is lately. If elected, what will you do to increase trust and ease divisions among the American people? Well, trust and divisions are two separate things. The divisions are ridiculous. I feel like both parties are working hard to uh, demonize the other side and pr provoking everybody against each other. As far as trust, I think that Congress has given us very little to trust in at this point. 
we see how most of the campaigns are financed and the super PACs and Citizens United have created massive um, fundraising issues that every American is concerned about. Um, we know that about the dialing for dollars issue where the senators and congressmen go in and sit in, in booths to, to make phone calls to raise money for their parties and it has been suggested that they have to raise a certain amount for, for their party to get a chairmanship or, or ideal committee seats. So I, I do agree with the lack of trust in Congress. Um, as far as bringing people together through the divisions, I know that some of the congressmen and women uh, put a show on TV as far as their conflict and then in private they actually get along. I think that we need to have more of a show of working, to, not a show, but a real working together and treating each other with respect and di dignity. Um, as far as finding solutions, we have to listen to all parties involved to create complete solutions rather than bipolar solutions that give us political whiplash every four to eight years. Senator Risch, trust in Congress and the White House has been at record lows consistently for the last 10 years, and we've all seen how vitriolic political discourse is lately. If elected, what will you do to increased trust, increase trust and ease divisions among the American people? Yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> That's a pretty big order uh, for the whole, for all the American people. But let, let me tell you what I can do. Um, I, I was uh, good friends uh, with uh, uh, Justice Scalia. And uh, he was here in Idaho and he and I got to, to spend some time together and, and we spent a day fishing together. And uh, we talked about lots of things. He and I became good friends. He was the most conservative member of the court. I'm the most conservative member of the US Senate. So we kind of bonded over that the first time we met. And we, we've been a good friend. So, you know, we talked about a lot of things. And one thing he said to me, I said, what, one of the things that came up was his friendship with, uh, with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And I said, how does this work? And he said, well, you have got friends on the other side. Yeah, I said, yeah, I do. How do, how do you do it with, uh, with her? And he says, well, this is very simple. He said, uh, we have always treated each other with kindness and with respect, kindness and respect. And I thought to myself, you know, that, that's kind of a simple formula, but it works. He and she were very good friends. There couldn't have been any two people more opposite uh, when it comes to, uh, uh, when it comes to philosophy about what America, what they want America to be and, and how we should attain that. Um, but they got along. They were not, not only got along, they were good friends. I mean, really good friends and their families are good friends. So what can I do? I like the model that he had. And I, I try to treat everyone with respect and kindness. Uh, you, you won't hear me out there beating the drum with these this hateful and vitriolic speech about opponents or the other side. I have really, really good friends on the other side of the aisle. We disagree greatly, but we're good friends and uh, and and uh, socialize together. And one of the best friends I ever made in, well, in the years I was in the state Senate is the, the minority leader, the person who ran the Democrat side. When I go to North Idaho, uh, I stay at his house. We're still good friends. He campaigns for me. So look, I know how to do this, but it's gotta be, it's gotta be one-on-one. -on -one. That's the most important thing. Representative Jordan, trust in Congress and the White House has been at record lows consistently for the last 10 years, and we've all seen how vitriolic political discourse is lately. If elected, what will you do to increase trust and ease divisions among the American people? Well, we have to be honest, you know, first and foremost, staying close to our people is the, the best way to be as a leader. Uh, that's why I believe all government is, should be local and that people should have a right and a say in, uh, in the decisions and the, the impacts on their lives. For me, I, I will always practice my 
uh, my line of thinking because of the ancestry that I come from. Working with both sides of the aisle is, um, is very uh, easy, very common for me. Uh, I know that the future of this country is going to be very reliant on independent-minded thinkers like myself. Uh, we're not about party and not being about party means being about the people and being about solutions. And given my relationship, having worked with those on Capitol Hill who are both Republican and Democrats, leaders on both sides of the aisle, I think really gives me an added strength and value that many people are familiar with seeing as far as an indigenous woman walking in the halls of Congress and going there on behalf of uh, the American people, going on behalf of Idahoans. And I think it's gonna be very critical to see a voice like mine being able to bring both sides of the aisle together when we're working on solutions for uh, the entire, entire country when it comes to healthcare solutions, when it comes to uh, bringing our economy back together when it comes to peace relationships, uh, even now that we're seeing this uh, race divide, this uh, partisan divide, uh, all of these um, ideas that people have, even the fears in this country, uh, they, they must be subsided when you see, uh, and only by the way we see leadership, uh, but leadership must also speak up. They must also you know, condemn uh, some of these issues that are driving us apart. Uh, that's why we have to uh, bridge out corporate corruption out of politics. Uh, it's also why we must address uh, you know, white supremacy that has not been condemned by the Republican Party. And so there's uh, so many options for us, but leading by example is to me the best way forward. Senator, this year, President Trump nominated Amy Coney Barrett with less than two months before the election. Do you support moving forward with the confirmation process right now? Sure, just as I did uh, with uh, Mayor Garland. Uh, when uh, 29 times in our history, there has been a vacancy in an election year. 29 times the president filled that vacancy during the election year. 29 times the Senate then did their job. Look, the president took the oath, just like we did, to uphold the Constitution of the United States, and just as importantly, to faithfully discharge uh, the obligations uh, of your office. We took that oath. Barack Obama rightly uh, filled the position with Mayor Garland. The Senate rightly reviewed it and withheld its consent. Our job is to uh, either consent or not consent. Uh, and uh, the same thing's happening here. Uh, President Trump rightfully did what he, the Constitution requires him to do, and that is that he, uh, he nominated someone to fill the office, and we are going to take it on. How it's gonna come out, you know, everybody's predicting, but these things have a way of taking twists and turns. But uh, from my standpoint, I took an oath to, to uphold the Constitution and discharge uh, the obligations of my office. And it had no date attached to it. It didn't say, well, if you're this close to an election, you're not going to do it. It said you would do it. And that's what I'm going to do. As a follow-up, Senator, in 2016, many Senate Republicans, including yourself, refused to hold meetings with Judge Garland because it was a presidential year, because you didn't consent to the pick. Uh, do you worry about Senate Republicans coming off as hypocritical? Well, of course, you know, it doesn't matter. Uh, there's always going to be that allegation. It happens all the time. Uh, look, I did not refuse to meet with uh, just uh, Judge Garland. And uh, uh, there, his staff called mine and they wanted to meet. And I said, I definitely would meet with him as soon as he came out. Of, he'd been referred to the Judiciary Committee. There's no sense meeting until it comes out of the Judiciary Committee. So I told him I would meet with him when he came out of the Judiciary Committee. The Judici Judiciary Committee did not put him out, so I did not have a meeting with him. Um, but it didn't matter. I was going to vote against Justice Garland. Let there be no mistake about it. I, I'm, I'm not trying to pretend that, uh, that I was going to be uh, misled. He, he was a radical, uh, far left liberal. And 
I voted against Obama's other two picks for the very same reason. I wasn't going to vote for him. That doesn't mean. And, and by the way, I met with with uh, uh, Judge or with uh, Barack Obama's other two appointees, and I had really nice conversations with them. And I, I when I see him, I'm still friends with him. But I didn't vote for him. And uh, I, you know, it's just that's just the way it is. But I now I, I feel comfortable where I am on it. You got to be fair. Uh, Senator Risch, how would you vote on future court and cabinet nominations from a president of a different party? Will you look at their record and judge them or will you judge them based on the party of the president who is making the nominations? Well, of course not. You know, uh, uh, we uh, when Barack Obama took over, I had the occasion to vote on his cabinet and I actually voted for probably a majority of, of the people that he picked for his cabinet. Um, in fact, when Barack Obama took office, I think we had seven of his cabinet appointees in place in really, really short order. I mean, uh, days. And so, uh, uh, look, when the election's over, it's time to turn the page and move forward. And uh, let me give you an example. Uh, I, as chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, I have to work very, very closely with the Secretary of State, and I do. Um, and uh, so whoever he appoints, I would suspect they're probably going to come out of the, uh, the foreign relations community, just as uh, when uh, uh, Barack Obama appointed first Hillary Clinton and then uh, John Kerry. Uh, in fact, John Kerry was had the job I've got right now when, uh, when he was appointed. And um, I have to work closely with them. Foreign relations is, is very, very bipartisan and nonpartisan. And uh, and yes, we have our we have our differences, uh, deep differences from time to time, but we got to get we, to move America forward to do the right thing for America. Uh, we need to work together. So look, I'm ready when this election's over. I want to turn the page. I want to move forward. However, the election comes out, I hope everyone uh, will will come to this with the with that same feeling. Representative Jordan, this year President Trump nominated Amy Coney Barrett with less than two months before the election. Do you support moving forward with the confirmation process right now? First of all, I you know I will say that we have to ensure that we have a hearing process. Uh, I think we have to make sure that we are fair, uh, and then you know I, I want to also say that you know this really isn't about who is sitting on the court. It's about the issues that hang in the balance, and people must focus on the fact that we have health care clean air and water, uh, making, making equal pay for equal work and the rights of voters, immigrants, immigrant and women, and of course our workers, uh, all of that is on the ballot. Uh, but when I am looking at who we have before us, I wanna make sure that people know that it's, it's about fairness and we need to take this process very seriously. So we must ensure a fair hearing. Uh, we must ensure that the, these individuals are qualified so that we don't have an activist court on either side and I'll tell you what I won't do. I won't approve a candidate before there is a hearing. And I won't refuse to meet with a nominee across party lines. And I won't gaslight the American public into thinking that we need to rush through a nominee. And I'm wholly disappointed that Senator Jim Rich is reflexively accepting the president's SCOTUS pick before she goes through the confirmation process. He says it's all about politics, but that's not what the Supreme Court is supposed to be about at all. This court battle turns Idahoans' health care coverage into a political football. And if the court scraps the entire Affordable Care Act, insurers could once again discriminate or drop coverage completely for more than 100 million people living with pre-existing conditions, including the 7 million Americans who may have lung scarring and heart damage from COVID-19. Are you in favor of expanding the court? No, and again, um, I, I'm not in favor of expanding the court. Uh, I actually 
uh, prefer that we keep it limited, um, primarily because I want to ensure that we, again, enact fairness. Uh, we also make, we need to make sure that we uh, take every single individual very seriously, because I, again, while I don't believe in court packing, I say we have to play with the hand that we're dealt with. And uh, so we have to make sure that we just do not appoint someone who is going to be overly political and divisive. Uh, and that's what we have in this nominee. If Amy Coney Barrett is confirmed and sits on the Supreme Court, and if Republicans win the Senate, how do you plan to be effective in achieving your legislative goals and fixing some of the concerns that you've brought up? Well, I don't like playing with hypotheticals, uh, but what I do know is that, again, uh, for me, it's about honesty and integrity, working with your people. And uh, to me, I don't know that any Idahoan would want to expand uh, our Supreme Court justice. I, and I know if we're stuck with an, uh, an appointee as such, uh, and Amy Coney Barrett, uh, we are going to be faced with many challenges. Uh, so it's going to be about uh, those of us protecting not only the Affordable Care Act uh, while in the U.S. Senate, but also protecting women's rights to health care. And, you know, we have so many other issues that are on the docket, uh, aside from uh, workers' rights in Idaho being nearly 50th in the country when it comes to equal pay for women uh, and the treatment of women, especially the treatment of women's rights to access health care. Uh, all of these must be protected, especially for those of our uh, young people, our next generations who are to follow. Uh, and I think for me, myself, I want to make sure that I am a, a devout advocate when it comes down to ensuring that everyone has the right to access health care. And of course, our young women uh, are protected when it comes to uh, their own health care choices. And of course, even more so, uh, protecting our environment, because we have a vast majority of our state that's covered with, uh, with public land. And have, um, we certainly have many beautiful lakes and rivers and mountains that we want to protect. Uh, clean air and clean water is certainly at the top of my ticket that I want to uh, continue to champion as a voice for. Um, so I know that we, we certainly have a lot to deal with if we have this nominee uh, to face. This year, President Trump nominated Amy Coney Barrett with less than two months before the election. Do you support moving forward with the confirmation process right now? I do believe that whoever, when the senators are, are in agreement with the president, whether it's Republican or Democrat, they should move forward, even though it is the end. Uh, when I spoke to voters four years ago when Donald Trump was elected, they all said that they were voting for Trump because they wanted his choice for the um, Supreme Court. And that is why he was elected to begin with. Um, whether or not you agree with that is irrelevant. That is their right and their responsibility to act quickly. So I do support them making that decision. And I know that the other party, the, the Democrats, would actually be doing the same thing. So it is, they, they do have a responsibility to do their job, whether or not it's the end 11th hour or not. As a follow-up, how would you vote on future court and cabinet nominations from a president of a different party? Will you look at their record or judge them based on the party of the president who is making the nominations? For me, the party of the, the party of the president making the nomination is irrelevant. Um, I would look. I, I love the Constitution, and I would look at the record of the of the candidate of the nomination to see uh, how well they defend our beautiful Constitution as it is right now. Um, we've overcome most of many of the problems in the Constitution through appropriate amendments. Um, so I would I would look at them on a constitutional basis. I don't care who makes the nomination. Um, and I do, I would look at their personal record also. I do think that is something to consider. I think we've got a society where uh, people can 
do terrible things. I, I think we sit to say terrible things to our sons when we say that a man can be sexually aggressive and cruel and then uh, raise them to, to positions of high status. And of course, we're telling young women that uh, no matter what happens to them, that those men can get away with it and be put in positions of power. And that's frightening for those of us who have had those challenges. As a follow-up, other independents like Senator King and Senator Sanders, Sanders caucus with other parties. Who would you caucus with, and as an independent, how would you be effective in getting things done? Well, first of all, I have been a Republican my entire life, and I left the party two years ago after looking at some of the data files for the congressional races on the, where the money was coming from and how the money was being spent. Uh, but my values are primarily conservative, but with a soul. So uh, I, I think I would party, uh, party. <laughs> I would caucus uh, more towards the libertarian side, I believe, uh, but protecting the Constitution. Um, you know, there's the Women's Caucus, there's, there, there's several things. But one of the, what I'm really hoping for is a 50-50 Senate with me as an independent. Uh, I will be very clear from the very beginning that there are certain things that I will absolutely vote no on. And that vote in the Senate would have more power than in the House, of course. But, um, for example, I'm not willing to, to vote yes on any of the omnibus bills. I would vote no on them, and they would need to know that ahead of time. But it, it will be very challenging as an independent. But I think Idaho voting for an independent right now would really put a shock in D.C. and shake them up. Representative Jordan, this administration's approach to foreign affairs has been unconventional compared to prior administrations. Are you happy with where we are when it comes to our international relationships? Mm, not at all. Uh, Senator Rich's service as chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee is nothing to be proud of. Uh, and I'll tell you, our country has certainly shifted in uh, the wrong direction. Senator Rich should know better. He should have known that we can withdraw from international organizations trying to bring the full force of the world together to combat a global pandemic, but he is not strong enough or capable enough to give the president proper guidance. And his complacency led to the withdrawal of the United States from the World Health Organization, and that was a major mistake. He hasn't used that committee assignment to help the people of Idaho prepare for this deadly virus, uh, nor from any other issue for that matter, especially when it comes to trade relations. But what's more is on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, he had the position to prevent gouges to Idaho farming. And rather than lead, he swept important protections for Idaho farmers under the rug and has made farming dependent on federal USDA bailouts. And those subsidies haven't even begun to cover the losses of our, our farmers have suffered from US trade wars with countries like Mexico and China. The backbone and pride of Idaho is our land. Uh, for those of us who were uh, born and raised here like myself, you know, we know what that means. We love our independence. And farmers and ranchers are central to our Idaho economy. And Rich's policy has completely failed our farmers. Idaho's agricultural industry, the backbone of our state economy, has quietly tanked as a result of retaliatory tariffs and poorer trade deals. The farmers and ranchers don't want USDA payments. Uh, they, want to get, they don't want to get stuck in the middle uh, of trade disputes. They want to stand on their own two feet and have access to markets they've spent lifetimes building. And of course, you know, leadership matters when it comes to foreign, rela foreign relations and foreign policy and agriculture. And we definitely need a senator who cares about Idaho agriculture. I was raised on a family farm that has been passed on for generations. And I know that we need foreign policy that works for Idaho farmers and ranchers. So funding and coordination of programs to focus attention on Idaho's Cut natural.
As, and as a related follow-up, the U.S. ag industry has become increasingly reliant on money from the federal government due to the trade wars and tariffs. And American companies like Idaho's Micron have seen their business affected by the actions against companies like Huawei. So considering the path we're on, how do you balance these sorts of concerns and, and how do you balance the security risks with the financial concerns for these Amer uh, these Idaho businesses? Well, it's essential that we balance the security risks with Idaho's businesses. Uh, you know, we certainly have to ensure that we're protecting our energy system, our infrastructure, uh, portion jobs, uh, but funding and coordination really is going to matter uh, when it comes to being a national voice. Uh, and like I said before in my previous uh, response that, you know, AgTech to me is going to be uh, all a part of the future uh, and producing high paying jobs, increasing revenue, creating opportunities in business and rural areas, uh, and of course, supporting our love of land and soil. Um, and of course, we have to also address the, the living wage. Uh, we haven't addressed this yet in Idaho. Too many Idahoans are working for menial wages and are scraping to get by. Uh, right now, we have an abuse of corporate power over labor in America. We have a senator who is afraid to do anything about it. Leadership matters when it comes to a living wage in Idaho. And we need to drive policy that holds corporations and executives personally accountable for interfering with organizing efforts and violating other labor laws. And one that restores workers' rights to bargain for better wages, benefits, and working conditions. So we have so much more to do here. Uh, but meanwhile, while we have uh, corporate profits at an all-time high, wages of, as a percentage of the economy are near an all-time low. So the middle class is disappearing. So it's, it's more than just about security uh, we, and, uh, and cybersecurity. You know, we actually need someone to protect our rights here at home when it comes down to earning a simple uh, living wage that is uh, acceptable. I'm gonna have to cut you off there for time, sorry. Ms. Fleming, this administration's approach to foreign affairs has been unconventional compared to prior administrations. Are you happy with where we are right now when it comes to our international relationships? Well, right now we have um, some major problems going on overseas, especially with China. Um, China is, is expanding across the globe, across Africa. Um, the decrease of U.S. influence across the world has been seen as China's been doing predatory lending to third world countries throughout Africa and other nations. And they've been calling in their debts and claiming natural resources in those areas. And that does have a direct impact on us as they've been clearing the forests of Africa, raising the temperatures, which raises um, actually, the, that it does have effect in impact on the hurricanes, as most of the hurricanes start in the Sahel region of Africa. So, um, but China's been harvesting uh, across the globe, and they've also been harvesting uh, the most of the fish and uh, life in the oceans, which is desertifying the oceans. Uh, but, but the, we, we see in the votes in the United Nations as we have lost influence in the UN and we've lost power because of how things have been done on an international basis. And foreign actors who are dangerous, China is a direct threat to the United States. And so is Russia and so is North Korea. So. As a follow-up, are you concerned about foreign interference with this upcoming election? Yes, absolutely. The foreign information is huge. There's so many trolls on the internet. I get uh, Facebook friend requests from supposed Amer American generals every day that are trolls, and I know that. Uh, but the, the foreign interference that I see is usually through social media, 
And uh, we know that foreign actors pretend to be on both sides of it, both BLM or the Proud Boys or whomever provoking us against ourselves. America is the most powerful nation in the known history of the world. And the only thing that can destroy us is us. And foreign actors are influencing the election um, through polarizing us through social media. And uh, yes, it needs to be done, but I think the best way to have, well, we can put a restriction on access to social media within 90 days prior to an election. I believe that we can do that through technology. Ms. Fleming, did I hear you correctly as a follow-up? You are discussing restricting access to social media 90 days prior to the election. Isn't that a major First Amendment concern? Oh, I'm sorry, I need to clarify. That is restricting access from foreign countries to American social media. Facebook, they do have the, they do have the technology through IP addresses to track who the users are in social media. And so, for example, when I create a website, I would um, block about a cer certain countries. If you block Asia from your website, you end up losing 98% of your foreign attacks on your website. So we do have the technology to limit uh, those accounts to American accounts, especially. And, and Facebook is taking action to make sure that their advertising is, is done by verified accounts. Senator Risch, this administration's approach to foreign affairs has been unconventional compared to prior administrations. Are you happy with where we are when it comes to our international relations? Un unconventional is an interesting word, but uh, it is a very accurate word. Uh, look, pre President Trump is an unconventional president. He, he does things differently. Um, we, uh, he and I don't always agree on things and uh, probably uh, uh, the foreign relations side of it uh, We've got some issues there, but we, we, we get through it. We, you know, he and I have spirited discussions on these issues and, and we always treat each other. He's, he's never treated me with anything but the utmost respect. When the conversation's over, he's still the president. I'm still not. Sometimes I've moved him in a direction. Sometimes I haven't, but uh, you got to deal the hand. They, uh, you got to play the hand that they deal you. But in any event, um, uh, our our uh, European uh, partners uh, are just apoplectic over, uh, for instance, a lot of things, but particularly uh, NATO. And look, we're not going to get out of NATO. Uh, th this is the this is the most successful military and political alliance in the history of the world. And yet they're convinced that somehow the president is going to pull us out of NATO. Well, he can't do it, first of all, because the Congress is involved in this. Uh, but in President Trump's defense, I've been doing this for years. And every time I got after the Europeans and said, look, you guys got to pay your fair share, what you agreed to pay for NATO. They pat you on the head and say, oh yes, by, by 90, we have a plan that by 2034, we're gonna be on board. And it, nothing ever happened. The president went in and uh, did what he does and they're writing checks right now. So uh, uh, they're, they're um, look, our relationships are, are uh, Everybody talks about how deteriorated they are. Not so much. They're still coming to us all the time. They want our help. They want our friendship. I deal with them every single day, and uh, I get along fine with them. As a follow-up, your Senate responsibilities straddle both foreign affairs and business concerns. The U.S. ag industry has become increasingly reliant on money from the federal government due to tariffs and trade wars. And American companies like Idaho's Micron have seen their businesses affected by the actions against companies like Huawei. So how do you balance these sorts of concerns? And does the course we're on risk hurting American businesses more than helping them? 
Well, you always have to be careful that you don't hurt American businesses more than you help them. I, in my committee, uh, we're one of the clearinghouses for when we put sanctions on another country. And American businesses come to see me all the time, and I tell them my philosophy on this. So I, I support sanctions. I think sanctions are really, really important. But you always got to make sure you shoot them with a rifle and not a shotgun. You want to make sure that those are do what they're designed to do, and that is change conduct on the part of the country, not hurt one of your own businesses. And so uh, we're very careful on that. I've got them in a good place where, where they know they can come to see me on those. Uh, when it comes to Micron technology, I've got a very, very close working, ship, working relationship with uh, Micron technology. They have serious, serious challenges, uh, particularly from China, which is another whole story. Uh, but um, uh, I should touch on the egg industry briefly. Uh, less and less the egg is going to become uh, dependent on uh, on this. I think once we have COVID behind us, uh, it'll be better. My family's in the ranching business. I'm very sensitive to this. Uh, interestingly enough, for I'm this have year- I'm going to cut you off there for time. I apologize. Thank you. That's all right. Fair enough. Uh, Ms. Fleming, in the last 30 years, 70% of southern Idaho's forests have burned and fire seasons are getting longer and more intense. Wildland fires are causing irreversible harm to local habitats. What role does the federal government have in protecting and restoring these habitats? Well, right now, the federal government has had a major role in expanding the fires and increasing the fuel of the fires through terrible fire management. I feel like there's a great arrogance back east towards the federally owned lands in the West. Um, obviously, we need selective, selective um, logging and uh, grazing. Before Europeans came to America, we had beavers that uh, restored wa water um, riparian areas. We had uh, tens of millions of bison going through and grazing. We had tens of millions of pronghorn and elk and deer going through and grazing. And they're not doing that anymore. And each species eats, eats something different, whether it's a woody plant, a grassy plant, or shrubs. And we do need to mimic that, and we have learned how to do that. We do need to allow more grazing in the wild, in the, in the federally owned lands. Um, there's something called the holistic land management, where we bring in the livestock to graze, keep them in a, in a tight mob, and move them quickly through the area so they can do all the clearings that they need and then move on and don't come back until it's restored. Currently, BLM and Forestry Services limit that and uh, we're not able to get the restorative impact of the, of the livestock. As a follow-up, land management isn't mutually exclusive with climate change and scientists agree that that's a major contributing factor to fire season. What should Congress do to address climate change? Well, I firmly believe that the strongest power we have in affecting climate change is through um, micro microclimate management. A microclimate can be as small as an area around a blade of grass. Um, each blade of grass is, is a water condensation unit and converts CO2 into oxygen and sequesters carbon. Um, a farmer will plow his field and plant it, and immediately after he'll see a rain cloud come, and it will rain on the field next, but skip his, because that bare field creates a microclimate of heat that drives the moisture away. Um, I believe that the, the strongest and most dramatic effect we can have is in microclimate management, and that affects how we farm. The farmers who use low-till or no-till systems 
um, have a great impact in lowering the temperatures in their area and actually drawing in more moisture and retaining that moisture. Um, as a follow-up question, climate doesn't see borders and what's happening in China affects the climate here. What's happening here affects the climate in Europe. And so realistically, can we do climate change on a micro level when internationally this is an issue? Yes and no. China is doing a great job within their own country as far as uh, planting trees and grasses to, re to rejuvenate and even uh, take back the Gobi Desert. At the same time, they're going overseas and harvesting and clear-cutting other nations throughout Africa and other countries. But uh, farmer, Mark Shepard is a farmer in, uh, I'm gonna lie, in another state, and he, he implements amazing farming practices, and his land is fireproof, floodproof, droughtproof, and pre drought, drought resistant. And uh, when floods come and affect other, other, his community, his farm is resilient too. Gabe Brown in North Dakota, he farms on about 5,000 acres, and he grazes his cattle under the snow in the dead of winter in December. He is, through microclimate management, you can have a dramatic effect in your own area, despite what's happening other, in other places. Senator, in the last 30 years, 70% of southern Idaho's forests have burned and fire seasons are getting longer and more intense. Wildland fires are, ca are causing irreversible harm to local habitats. What role does the federal government have in protecting and restoring these habitats? Yeah, that's a great question. It's actually something I know a little bit about. Uh, my undergraduate degree was in uh, forestry, forest management to be specific. When I came to the United States Congress, there's 535 members. I was the only member who had any background in forestry whatsoever. Um, so I've been active in this. I'm on the I'm on Energy and Natural Resources Committee. In fact, I'm the third uh, senior member of that committee. Um, I get this. Uh, we have done a lot of things. I, we had a bipartisan effort that we spent years trying to get through. And it wasn't a fight between Republicans and Democrats. It was a fight between East Coast versus West Coast. And that is uh, more and more the agencies, the BLM and the Forest Service, uh, the, a larger and larger percentage of their budget was going to fight fire, which is an emergency. They took money away from management to fight fire. Well, of course, it, it became uh, uh, a spiral. The more they took away from management, the worse the fires got. And so we have finally convinced, and, and we're almost fully there now. We got the bill in place, and it is uh, uh, being implemented where these forest fires are going to be funded like other uh, catastrophes in America, hurricanes, earthquakes, floods, the things that FEMA steps up and does. They don't take the money out of other budgets to do that. Uh, they take it from the catastrophe budget. Well, we now have the, uh, the funding for forest fires moved over there so that the agencies are going to have a uh, uh, a more money to manage the forests. And that was a bipartisan effort and it was a hard fought effort, believe me. In the last 30 years, Representative Jordan, 70% of Southern Idaho's forests have burned and fire seasons are getting longer and more intense. Wildland, wildland fires are causing irreversible harm to local habitats. What role does the federal government have in protecting and restoring these habitats? Well, when it comes to public lands, I believe in keeping public lands in public hands. And conservation policy is a defining issue in the U.S. Senate race. People need to know who he wishes before they vote for him just because he says he's a Republican. Uh, the base that uh, Senator Rich plays to wants to sell off precious public lands that we Idahoans hold as sacred. Um, so it's, it's very essential that we continue to fund and actually boost 
resources to our forest management industry, we need to ensure that we have fuels uh, lines teams so that our fuels management uh, has uh, greater backing so that we can actually address these larger timber fires that are coming down and actually have hit us this year. And I will tell you that with an opponent like mine who is very anti-conservation, anti-public lands, uh, he's uh, only been given a, a mere 7% rating from the League of Conservation Voters. He recently voted against the Great American Outdoors Act, the most consequential bipartisan conservation legislation of his career, which fully funds the Land and Water Conservation Fund and benefits every single county in Idaho and our economy. And his no vote shows how out of touch he is with Idaho's needs. So I'll tell you that this, uh, you know, this has impacted us more by more than a half a billion dollars worth of deferred maintenance in its national parks and forests. And according to the, the data that was collected by the Forest Service, uh, the GAOA will help our federal land management agencies, you know, address these maintenance backlogs on Idaho's federal public lands and our trails, our campgrounds that are needing updating. Um, our infrastructure uh, will definitely improve uh, public accessibility. And if we address these maintenance costs, it will directly impact our economic activity on Idaho's public lands and in the gateway communities, uh, which is why we have to continue this uh, collaboration with those uh, surrounding states. And I'm grateful that Montana, uh, Washington, and others are uh, wanting to work with us in ensuring that we are protecting our public lands into uh, future generations. As a follow-up, when it comes to combating climate change, international cooperation will be necessary to make any lasting impact. What steps would you take to create an international effort to combat climate change? This is where I shine. This is an area where I believe that we definitely need strong leadership when it comes down to environmental protection issues. And as a nationally recognized leader on the environment and uh, other uh, concerns that people have, uh, I will continue to lead in this way uh, to balance policymaking for future generations. I've worked hard for many years, both in government and in the private sector to protect not only our public lands, but working toward proper management of our forests and protecting our natural resources and wildlife in Idaho. You know, we have to get back into uh, getting into the Paris Climate Agreement and ensuring that we are part of the global leadership and part of the, the global conversations and, uh, and leading in that regard. So we definitely need policy which both protects our environment and contributes to economic prosperity. And having been raised in our land, I realize how incredibly important it is to remain connected to it. We definitely need leaders who are going to respect our land and who are willing to combat corporate greed in order to address climate change. Senator Risch, what are your immigration policy priorities? Uh, great, great question. Um, we, this country desperately needs to resolve this immigration question. It is really unfortunate that it's political. I thought they had a deal put together and I was fully on board with it. And that is they were going to, uh, and I forgot this has been a year ago or something like that. They were gonna trade the DACA solution for uh, uh, border for funding on the border to stop illegals from coming in. I support uh, I support legal immigration. This country was built on it. Both sides of my family uh, in, immigrated, uh, the German side, the, the, the Irish side. Uh, I, I support that, I'm all in. Uh, but we need to have people vetted before they come here. We need to have the policy such that we accept people uh, that we want to come into the country under uh, a, a legal immigration. You can't do it if your borders are wide open. So I want to see, uh, first of all, the borders secure so that we do have control over the over our immigration. I want to see the DACA uh, issue resolved. I, I think that cries out for a, uh, a resolution. It should be resolved. 
Um, and as you know, in Idaho, uh, we we rely heavily uh, on uh, guest workers, and uh, we have an awful guest worker program right now. Uh, we need a guest worker program that allows guest workers to come in, work, and go home and come back again, so they can go back and forth, and so that their employers can rely on, on guest workers. Uh, this is a this is a, a, an issue that really cries out to be resolved. Representative Jordan, what are your immigration policy priorities? Well, as someone who's very familiar with our Latino population, you know, we have a long ways to go when it comes to immigration. Uh, and I certainly want to make sure that we are servicing our community in the best way and the best bipartisan approach to comprehensive immigration reform so we can improve and expedite legal immigration while beefing up security at entry points. And then there are many immigrants who abide by our laws and contribute to our economy, and we need to create an efficient pathway to citizenship. I will also work to improve our security so we don't allow bad actors into our country. And to do that, we need to focus intensively on our courts, which need better enforcement. Ms. Fleming, what are your immigration policy priorities? Well, first of all, first of all, I do not see uh, immigrants as a threat to America when done right. Um, I know that right now the policies are, they're creating uh, a great deal of bureaucracy and red tape. Um, I, I do have immigration attorney friends who have had to, who are conservative, who have had great difficulty in getting legitimate clients through the system. So um, I know that the farmers and ranchers have asked for something called the H2C or H1C, which would expand the number of months that migrant workers are in the States. Um, and also uh, veterans who have served have difficulty, uh, have a slow time getting citizenship. I believe they should, be ex they should be expedited. But as far as immigration policy, we need to have a navigatable system. And right now it is very unnavigatable. And we, it, here in America, we get to make our own laws. So when we say that they're illegal, it, is our law made fairly? So we need to make sure that those laws, we have the power to make sure the laws are fair and done reasonably well so that people can uh, gain their citizenship and uh, their green cards to work here. Representative Jordan, this year's Black Lives Matter protests are just the latest in a decades-long conversation about racial disparities in policing and use of force. If elected, what would you do to address this? Well, this is another area where I feel uh, very strongly about in having a position of leadership. You know, we support our, our men and women in uniform and they do a great deal of work for us. And I think this is an area where we definitely have to take a hard look at why it is that they're doing so much. Uh, they're, having, they're being called to be our social workers. Uh, they're called to be counselors. They're called to you know, break up fights. And it's, uh, it's interesting to me how we have tend, tended to abuse and uh, overload our police officers, our police men and women who are serving our communities. There needs to be balance in this shift. And of course, our young people are demanding action all across this country, including here in Idaho. And I commend them for speaking up and wanting to demand this justice, uh, but it also comes with balance. And this is where good leaders must be uh, in place to ensure that our next generation feels safe and ensuring that our young people, while there's a rise in uh, you know, this, uh, the uh, opioid pandemic and uh, the fact that we're still seeing uh, drug abuse, and now that we have the, the COVID pandemic over us, more and more people have been impacted uh, with behavioral mental health uh, we want to make sure that we're protecting everybody. So uh, when it comes down to this, I'd like to see uh, officers trained uh, in the right way as possible, 
uh, knowing how to address these certain situations. I think there's a way to de-escalate uh, when it comes down to the way uh, certain uh, issues have been impacted. Uh, and of course, the, the right training to me is the best way to move forward, uh, but also making sure that our citizens have a position at the table uh, with our law enforcement so that they're working uh, collaterally to ensure that we're not only safe into the future, but feeling that we have a general understanding so that there's some cultural training and uh, across training for each other, because I feel our people also uh, must know what goes on the other side. Uh, so it does go both ways. Ms. Fleming, this year's Black Lives Matter protests are just the latest in a decades-long conversation about racial disparities in policing and the use of force. If elected, what would you do to address this? Well, first of all, all of these are at the local level. Um, the protests and riots that I've seen, that we see on the news, a lot of that comes from a, a group hatred where we put people in mental groups. In, in social groups and judge them as a group as a whole. Along with Black Lives Matter, you see um, uh, group condemnations such as uh, all cops are B or saying derogatory things in groups. It's important that we treat each person as an individual and we judge situations as individuals, not as groups and, and, and establishing an individual accountability um, and action. Um, as far as the police forces, those police forces must always be handled on a local level. That is something where the policeman in your community needs to be under the power of your community and not a federal power. And that's a basic constitutional principle of the way our states are formed, the way the federal government's formed. So um, that needs to be handled at the state level as much as possible. Senator Risch, this year's Black Lives Matter protests are just the latest in a decades-long conversation about racial disparities in policing and use of force. If elected, what would you do to address this? Well, uh, you know, there's been a lot of discussion over that. Uh, and and uh, uh, look, uh, uh, I started my career as a, as a prosecuting attorney. I know police officers. Uh, I know law, all law enforcement officers, sheriffs, deputies, uh, across the board. These are good people. There's 800,000 of them in America. There are people that should not be in this job. We all saw it on TV uh, when George Floyd lost his life to a, a law enforcement officer. It was disgusting. It was horrifying. It was stomach turning. And people are crying out for justice. I couldn't agree more. Uh, this man's going to go to prison for the rest of his life, and he should. Uh, but uh, to paint every law enforcement officer uh, with the broad brush that, oh, they're racist, not so. These are not people that want to hurt other people. They have signed up to be a law enforcement officer because they want to help people. Uh, look, I, when I was a prosecutor, I counseled officers who, who did take a life of, a, of someone who was uh, doing something. Uh, and uh, believe me, they're never the same. When that trigger's pulled, there's all kinds of victims and they're on each and, and th this is th this is not a good deal. I used to teach those classes and I said, uh, these young kids who were coming in, I said, every day when you get up in the morning and you put that gun on, say a little prayer that that gun never ever comes out of the holster. And at night, when you take that gun out of the holster, say a little prayer and say, thank you God for the gun not coming out of the holster. These people don't want to do that. We, we, need, to, uh, we need to support our police uh, and uh, we're obviously there are other issues that need to be addressed. And, and I supported uh, uh, Tim Scott's bill on, uh, on, on doing some things that will move it forward. All right, thank you, Senator.
Amid the challenges of the pandemic, do you see any cause for unusual concern over the election, poll access, or the results? Um, poll access, Idaho is uh, doing a good job at expanding access. I know that we had a problem in Canyon County where it seemed that they were going to have not enough polling stations and they've, and they've worked it out. I've talked to clerks across the state and, and, and see the great work that they're doing. As far as election credibility, it is very important for the citizen to make to participate as much as possible to make sure that their ballot is in in a timely manner. But also we have the opportunity to be poll observers and poll workers. And uh, we, we have, we're not helpless. It's not something that we should just turn over to the federal government. That is something that the local citizen needs to do to participate in the election to secure the elections. So. Will you accept the results of the election? Yep. Yes, I will accept the results of the election. Uh, contested elections are a, a way of destroying our country. We do not need any more division and destruction in our country. And I trust Idaho. I do trust Idaho. Other states, I'm not so sure. But Idaho, I do trust. And uh, yes, I will accept the results of the election. If you're saying you don't know about other states, will you accept the results of the presidential election? And that's the only choice we have. We have to accept it. Um, I think that dividing America will do more destruction than any, any more, it will do more destruction than any good it could possibly do. I will accept the results of the presidential election. Senator Risch, amid the challenges of the pandemic, do you see any cause for unusual concern over the election poll access or results? Uh, you know, uh, in Idaho, absolutely not. I, I think we're good in Idaho. Um, I, I do uh, have concerns in some areas. Uh, there's there, there's a lot of talk going on. There's there's an army of lawyers from both sides on the ground in some states, which which greatly troubles me. I'm I'm hoping that there's going to be a winner and a loser in this election. I hope whoever wins does it in a landslide, and we can all move on. Uh, Pennsylvania is the uh, is seems to be ground zero right now for that fight. I mean, there's lots of lawyers they're fighting they think they the other side thinks they can win it in the courts if they can't win it on the ground um i i, I the way we do this in idaho i mean we have a system that is really really good in idaho there's there's no question about it but i i you know i have a residence in dc obviously i'm there three nights a week uh, i'm here the, in, in idaho uh, the other uh, four days every week if i get a uh, mail there I got from the election department a card in the mail and said, look, you can you can register online, you can res register email, you can register by regular mail. And by the way, after you're registered on the first week in October, we're going to send everybody that's registered a ballot through the mail. Well, you know, I mean, you go, whoa, whoa, you know, what about the people that died? What about the people that have moved? What about uh, uh, people that that can't don't have the ability to vote uh, uh, for for one reason or another? I mean, you got to go whoa now it didn't trouble me because dc is dc i know exactly what's going to happen in dc so i'm not i'm not really concerned there and i don't know how widespread that is in america i know there's a few others but look it, for 244 years we have accepted the results of the uh, of the elections um that, that's what we need to do to that's what we need to do this year representative jordan amid the challenges of the pandemic do you see any cause for unusual concern over the election poll access or results well, we've already seen voter suppression in our state, you know, when it comes down to how uh, many of our communities are treated. Uh, we see so many of our counties who have shut down multiple polling locations. Uh, and it was unfortunate to see that. And, and uh, you know, thankfully, in some areas, we had enough time, enough notice 
to do something about it and push back. Uh, in Kenya County alone, we saw 55 polling locations uh, or 50 of the 55 polling locations removed, uh, meaning that of the five polling locations, there were over 100,000 people that would have to go to one location. And, and if they're moved or shifted, it does create a lot of confusion. Uh, and I think that there's certainly a way that we can address this. Uh, I, I trust and have faith in our local county clerks that they are going to do uh, a tremendous job in ensuring that every ballot is counted and protected. Um, this is why I try to get folks to go in and vote early now that we, we have this. And even though that window has been shortened in many counties, I still implore that many uh, others who are able to vote go and vote early. This is why it's essential to get there before November 3rd. So if you are watching this, please vote early. We have from the 19th on through the 30th in some areas to up to November 3rd. Uh, but please go and vote early because it would save you from waiting in the, the lines. Um, I imagine there are going to be uh, plenty of people waiting hours in line as they were in 2018 with people waiting all day, some waiting up to upwards of four hours on average to go and vote. Uh, so to prevent these long lines, please vote early as it's uh, very important for us to participate in this election. Very briefly, will you accept the results of the election? Absolutely. I firmly respect the uh, voices and decisions of the people, as all of us should, and I hope my opponent will do the same. Senator Risch, you now have 60 seconds to give your closing remarks. Well, thank you. Uh, for, for everybody who's watched, uh, I, I really apologize. I mean, we, we, we had a lot of stuff. We didn't cover the Supreme Court much. Uh, we didn't cover the economy much. We covered uh, health care a little bit. We didn't cover uh, trade agreements, uh, opening schools, or uh, a number of other things. But but it's hard to do, uh, obviously. These, these issues are not bumper sticker issues. These are deep, deep issues. And uh, But look, this is an easy choice in this particular race. You have a conserv conservative Republican, myself, with a long conservative record. There's no surprises here. People know how I'm going to vote every time Idaho's name is called uh, in the United States Senate. On the other side, you have a, a committed uh, liberal Democrat. I, I make no complaints about that. I mean, uh, uh, there's a choice and people should have a clear choice like they have in this race. If they want Idaho to be what Idaho is, I'm your guy. If you, on the other hand, if you want to move Idaho in a different direction, more left, then the, the vote should go the other way. This is America, greatest country in the world. All our challenges, we'll get through them. We know how to do this. We're Americans. Senator Ish, thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. You now have 60 seconds to give your closing remarks. Well, thank you, Melissa, for this opportunity to speak to Idahoans. I am proud to have so many independents of Republicans supporting me in this race. It doesn't matter what your ideological persuasion is. Senator Risch believes this, is a ra this race is a coordination and not an election. And he refuses to debate me, saying he doesn't believe a debate is a good place to publish his views. That's not what a debate is about, and he should have to answer for his record. He's not respecting the democratic process, and he's taking advantage of Idahoans. With our limited ability to contact voters, he should be taking every opportunity to reach the voters and show some leadership in this critical moment of crisis, and it's unacceptable. We need leadership to work across the aisle. The HEROES Act is still on McConnell's desk, and there are millions facing eviction, unemployment, hundreds of thousands are dead, and we are headed towards an education crisis. Our kids are now falling behind due to COVID, and in Idaho, internet access poses a problem to online learning. We're lacking critical infrastructure, which is why we're behind. Our leadership has failed us. And Rich wants to nationalize this election. So the choice is clear between a conservative and a liberal. But while he is obviously a typical, ineffective partisan politician, I am not. And I can he cannot tie me to any of the leaders we see now on the other side. I'm going to have to cut you off. And I will tell you all that it, I am incredibly grateful to be in this position to Jordan. serve where I come from. I'm going to have to cut you off for time, but thank you so much.
Thank you, Idaho. The future is in your hands. Thank you. You now have 60 seconds to give your closing remarks. Thank you. Um, again, my name is Natalie Fleming, and I'd like you to consider me as an independent candidate for United States Senate. Uh, Idaho is in a position to make a huge, to shake up D.C. We all know the correction that is happening there, and there's a strong distrust of, of D.C. And I know that some of you wonder, why should I run for U.S. Senate instead of having a local office first? But the truth is, if you will run in a local office first, you become the conditions to the parties to comply with what the parties want. And by the time you're in D.C., you're going to do what they tell you to do instead of what you know is right. I would love to see Idaho shock the nation by sending an independent uh, senator to D.C. And I'm grateful for the kindness and respect that I have received from voters throughout the state. I'm excited to see the incredible energy that we've had throughout the state for independent candidates this year. And I know we're all very unhappy with the status quo. And now this is your chance to do something different. And that's all the time we have. You've been listening to a question and answer session with the candidates for U.S. Senate in Idaho. This wasn't a traditional debate, and I always wish we had more time to get to other topics, but I hope you feel more informed about your choices. And I encourage you to vote on or before November 3rd. For the Idaho Debates, I'm Melissa Davlin. Thank you and good night. The Idaho Debates is organized by these partners. Funding provided by the Friends of Idaho Public Television, the Idaho Public Television Endowment, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.